0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Choosing Unity Over Discrimination. In the first half, President Kevin J. Worthen shares his address, Persevere in Unity. Then in the second half, Elder Quentin L. Cook gives his remarks entitled, Be Not Weary in Well Doing.
1: Welcome to the start of a new semester. One full of promise, but also one in which we face two major challenges—a global pandemic that threatens our physical health and increasing divisiveness and anger that threaten the moral and spiritual fiber of our society. Basically, COVID and chaos. The good news is that there are things within our individual and collective control that we can do to address both of these challenges. Let me start with the first— Even though many of the traditional educational routines continue to be altered because of the coronavirus, there is increasingly light on the horizon. With the rapid expansion of availability of a vaccine, we can envision a future in which we will be able to gather more often and in larger numbers, and where in-person meetings and classes will become the norm rather than the exception. But, and this is important, that day has not come yet. And the speed with which it comes, as well as the adverse impact the virus will have in the interim, will depend in no small part on the degree to which we continue to adhere to safety and health guidelines over these next few months. So while there is increased optimism because the end is in sight, there is a commensurate need to be more diligent than ever in wearing masks, washing our hands, maintaining social distancing, and complying with testing protocols. As I've considered our situation in this regard, my mind has gone to a tradition that began in earnest with William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States and later Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the only person in U.S. history to serve as the head of both the executive and judicial branches. Taft was a large man, standing over six feet in height and weighing well more than 300 pounds. He was also an avid fan of Major League Baseball. On April 14, 1910, then President Taft attended the opening game of the Major League season between the Washington Senators and the Philadelphia Athletics. According to one report, as the face-off between the Senators and the Athletics wore on, the rotund 6-foot-2 president grew more and more uncomfortable in his small wooden chair. By the middle of the 7th inning, he could bear it no longer and stood up to stretch his aching legs whereupon everyone else in the stadium, thinking the president was about to leave, rose to show their respect. A few minutes later, Taft returned to his seat, and the crowd followed suit, and the seventh-inning stretch was born. While most historians agree that something akin to a late-inning stretch took place sporadically at some baseball games prior to 1910, its enduring popularity is one of baseball's most deeply embedded rituals can be traced in large part to Taft's aches and pains at that Senators' athletics game. Now, what does President Taft's experience at a baseball game more than a century ago have to do with us? Let me suggest that with respect to the pandemic, we are just finishing the seventh-inning stretch. Just as President Taft needed a break after sitting in an undersized seat for six-and-a-half innings, many of us were ready for a change by the end of last fall semester. If seven innings of being confined to an uncomfortable seat can seem like a long time, nine months of social distancing, Zoom classes, and mask wearing can seem like a lifetime. Yet, we persevered. We made it to the end of the fall semester, and we welcomed the chance to change positions, to stretch, so to speak. The pandemic seventh-inning stretch came just in time for many of us. But the game was not over when President Taft took that rejuvenating break— He was re-energized, but he returned to his wooden chair, whose shape and size were no more accommodating than they were before he stood. There was more baseball to be played, and the outcome was still uncertain. A lot can happen in the last two innings of a baseball game. Similarly, the pandemic experience is not over for us. The need to adhere to the guidelines is more important than ever. Because of your good work last semester, we are ahead And if we stay ahead, if we finish strong, we can, like the home baseball team, end the game one half inning early. If, on the other hand, we lose focus and let down our guard, the virus may overtake us, requiring us to go extra innings or worse, to cancel the game. The seventh inning stretch can therefore not only rejuvenate us, it can also remind us of the need to continue on, the need to persevere. The word persevere has a deeper meaning than we may realize. President Nelson recently shared with us that one of the Hebrew meanings of this theologically significant name Israel is let God prevail. Another Hebrew meaning of that name given to Jacob after his wrestle is persevere, or he perseveres with God. This linguistic connection between persevere and Israel reminds us that difficult tasks, like persevering through a pandemic, are easier when we involve God in the process. So I urge you to persevere, to be not weary in well-doing, as the modern scripture puts it. We've made it to the seventh-inning stretch. We just need to finish strong. One key to persevering comes from another aspect of the traditional seventh-inning stretch. Years after President Taft's precedent-setting stretch in 1910, Some teams began to add music to the tradition. In 1934, the song Take Me Out to the Ball Game was played for the first time in a World Series game. Over the ensuing decades, that song has become standard seventh-inning fare at most major league parks. Because of its association with the seventh-inning stretch, it is now unquestionably the best-known baseball song in America, one that unifies the entire crowd at a baseball game regardless of their team preference. To those familiar with baseball, this surely must be odd. As one reporter put it, the seventh-inning stretch is a bit bizarre, fans suddenly standing up and singing a song about attending the very event they're at. But it's a ritual that makes baseball baseball, a shared experience. And it is that unifying element of the ritual that makes the moment so powerful and re-energizing. It doesn't matter how well you sing or which team you're cheering for. During the seventh inning stretch, you are united with others around you, brought together in the moment. As one Colorado Rockies fan explained, at the ballpark, it doesn't matter if you sing alto or awful. Baseball is best enjoyed if you embrace the chance to stand up and join in a tradition where for one minute we can get along even with Cardinals fans or Dodgers fans. There is, as Joseph Smith explained, power in unity. And we are more in need of that unifying power, perhaps, than at any time in our lifetime, not only to weather the pandemic storm, but also to address pressing issues like social justice, poverty, racism, and angry divisiveness and intolerance in political and other matters. Unity is a concept that extends well beyond baseball and even beyond any of the more important issues we currently face. It is an eternal gospel principle whose presence or absence determines not only the stability and prosperity of a community, but also our own eternal destiny. Simply put, we cannot be exalted without achieving a high level of unity. The Lord made this clear in the 38th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Be one, he commanded the early saints, because if ye are not one, ye are not mine. Given the centrality of unity to our eternal destiny, it is not surprising that on the last evening of his mortal ministry, the Savior prayed to his Heavenly Father on behalf of his beloved disciples, asking that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may be made perfect in one. The positive impact of unity on individuals and society is demonstrated by scriptural examples of societies that achieved an extraordinary level of unity. These include the descendants of Lehi in the American continent after the visitation of the Savior, the members of the early church in the Middle East shortly after the Savior's mortal ministry there, and the ancient people of Enoch. In each of these situations, the members of the society had their hearts knit together in unity and in love to such an extent that they could be described as being of one heart. Speaking of those who had reached this level of unity, Mormon observed Surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who have been created by the hand of God. Unity is essential to our happiness. Now, some may find strange a call for unity at a time when we are working to promote more diversity on campus. But as Elder Quentin L. Cook noted in the most recent General Conference, unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity. Some confusion on this issue comes from the ambiguity of the term unity. True unity does not require us to give up our individuality. As the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. observed, unity has never met uniformity. While all human beings share a common bond as beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, each of us is a unique individual— with individual personalities, experiences, and gifts, and each of these individual characteristics can contribute to greater unity. The Apostle Paul explained how this works in his first epistle to the saints at Corinth. After noting the different gifts that different individuals have been blessed with, Paul taught that even though the gifts were different, each contributed to the whole, just as individual parts of the body contribute to the wellness of the whole body. And each individual part is equally important. Paul said, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. President Howard W. Hunter summarized the point and applied it to the modern-day church when he stated, We are truly dependent on each other. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nor can the North Americans say to the Asians, nor the Europeans to the islanders of the sea, I have no need of thee. No, in this church we have need of every member. And we pray, as did Paul when he wrote to the church in Corinth, that there should be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. That same principle applies with full force to the university community. When we welcome and value the gifts talents, experiences, and perspectives of all of God's children who are engaged in our common enterprise, we will not only more fully reach our individual potential, but we will also be more united. Elder Bruce C. Hafen offered a simple analogy to explain how bringing together those with diverse gifts, personalities, and experiences can produce an enhanced and enriched form of unity. For me, he said, The ideal metaphor is a musical one. With our many voices, we could all sing in unison, in harmony, or in dissonance. Of these three, he said, I prefer harmony because it enables a variety of voices to blend into a fuller, richer sound than mere unison. And as demonstrated by Marcus Roberts and the modern jazz generation at a forum here last February, the analogy applies regardless of the type of music. Even in a jazz ensemble, where individual improvisation often takes center stage, there is still need for unity. And the results of this combination of individuality and unity are sweet, as demonstrated in the following clip. Jazz allows us to express our own ideas. Of course, there are rules, just as we have in a well-ordered society. There is a carefully defined
2: structure to the music, but that structure allows for flexibility. There's a lot of freedom in jazz music. You can take a lot of liberties with it. When I first started playing with Marcus almost 30 years ago, I didn't do that. I just played everything exactly as it was written. But Marcus encouraged me to integrate what I knew of the history of this music because jazz music arose out of the experiences of black people in America, but also out of my own history. And my history.
0: And my history.
1: And And our our history. history in your history too So if we want to achieve our full potential as individuals and as a campus community, we need to emphasize both unity and diversity, both our commonality and our individuality. Without unity, diversity becomes divisive. Without diversity, unity becomes stagnant. A powerful example of what can happen when unity and diversity combine was provided by our football team this past fall. As the team gathered for summer workouts, the sporting world and most of society were focused on racial inequalities and inequities that were brought to the fore by a number of events. Co-captain Troy Warner explained, we just wanted to get together and talk about how we were feeling, let players express their feelings, their emotions. As described by one reporter, black players, Polynesian players, and white players took turns. They had seen NBA players wearing social justice messages on their uniforms. The BYU players decided they wanted to send a message, too, one they hoped would be visible to the millions expected to watch broadcasts of their games. We had an open forum about what we thought should be the message, junior wide receiver Dax Milne said. We tried hard to make it a message that was not controversial, and someone mentioned, love one another—a teaching of Jesus Christ that resonates deeply with members of the church." The team designed a t-shirt with We Are One on the front and Love One Another on the back, reflecting both the power of unity and the means by which that happens. As Co-Captain Isaiah Kafusi stated, we've chosen to love and that unites us. The message was seen by millions, and sales of the t-shirts generated over $200,000 in profits, all of which the players decided to contribute to scholarships for first-generation college students, and others with extenuating circumstances at BYU. If we strive for true unity by following the Savior's example to love others, regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, political leanings, or other distinguishing characteristics, we can truly transform both our university community and the larger world with which we interact. Now, let me suggest two things we can do to enhance unity and diversity in ways that will help us both persevere through the pandemic and lay the foundation for a stronger, more diverse, and more unified campus. First, we must avoid contention. While diversity is not the opposite of unity, contention is. As the Savior himself made clear when he was laying the foundation for a Zion society in the ancient Americas— He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, he said, but this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. This does not mean that we will not disagree with each other, but it does mean we will do so in a way that both focuses on issues and not on ad hominem attacks. And also reflects the truth that each of us, including those with whom we disagree, is a beloved spirit of our Heavenly Parents. As former Academic Vice President Jim Rasman explained at our annual university conference in 2017, for us it is not unity or diversity, but both unity and diversity. Diverse perspectives and experiences will be a boon to our effort to discern how best to accomplish our mission and aims. We won't always agree, but we can disagree charitably. By charitable disagreement, he said, I mean more than basic civility. Instead of mere civility, which is a baseline obligation, I hope we will listen, really listen to each other, and work to understand one another's views and statements in a charitable light. What an oasis of learning we would be if pursuing light and truth were the goal. And if inevitable disagreements were handled with true charity. Oh, how we need that kind of oasis in the world today. And BYU can be that oasis. As Dr. King put it, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And as the football t-shirts remind us, if we want to be one, we must love one another, even those, especially those with whom we disagree. Second, we need to recognize that perfect unity can be achieved only through God and Christ. Our efforts to become united will be fully successful only if we focus first on our relationship with them. The Guide to the Scriptures defines unity as to become one in thought, desire, and purpose—first with our Father in Heaven and Jesus Christ, and then with other saints. If we align ourselves more with God and Christ, we will become more loving. We will see others more for who they really are, and we will draw closer to both God and our fellow human beings. Elder David A. Bednar once explained this truth in a more visual way with respect to married couples. Using a triangle with Christ at the apex and a wife at the base of one corner and a husband at the base of the other, both separated from each other and from the Savior, Elder Bednar explained that as the couple focuses their attention on the Savior, they are drawn upward to Him, and they naturally move closer toward one another at the same time. As Elder Bednar explained, because of and through the Redeemer, people come closer together. As Sister Reina Alberto explained when speaking of the Zion societies described in Fourth Nephi and the New Testament book of Acts, she said, We can suppose that the reason why they were so united is because they knew the Lord personally. They had been close to Him, and they had been witnesses of His divine mission, of the miracles that He performed, and of His resurrection. They knew that He is the source of all healing, peace, and eternal progress. God is the author of diversity and the source of unity. As we come closer to him and his son, Jesus Christ, we will advance both powerful principles in a synergistic way. As we embrace our true primary identity as children of God and as act as disciples of Christ, they will magnify our individual gifts while also making us more united. So my message to you is simple. Persevere in unity by coming closer to Heavenly Father and Christ, who never tire and are perfectly united. If we do so, we will be able to successfully meet whatever challenges we may face individually or collectively in the coming semester and year. May we do so is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Choosing Unity Over Discrimination. We've just heard from President Kevin J. Worthen. After the break, we'll return with Elder Quentin L. Cook for Be Not Weary in Well-Doing. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Choosing Unity Over Discrimination. Next is Elder Quentin L. Cook, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints at the time of this address, titled Be Not Weary in Well Doing.
2: I express my deep and heartfelt appreciation and gratitude for who you are and what you do. I have long admired the address Elder Spencer W. Kimball gave in 1967 to BYU's faculty and staff titled, Education for Eternity. Elder Kimball was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. In this profound talk, Elder Kimball challenged BYU and his faculty and staff to lift their vision in many areas and challenged them to aspire to a prophecy of President John Taylor. President Taylor issued this declaration, You will see the day that Zion will be far ahead of the outside world in everything pertaining to learning of every kind as we are today in regard to religious matters. Elder Kimball also quoted Brigham Young, Every accomplishment, every polished grace, every useful attainment in mathematics, music, and in all sciences and art belong to the Saints. Since Elder Kimball's 1967 address, Membership in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has increased from approximately 2.6 million to 16.5 million members. Needless to say, BYU students, with their many accomplishments, have also increased dramatically. I do not intend to describe all the accomplishments and advancements that have occurred. It would be almost impossible— Let me share two conversations I have had over the summer with knowledgeable friends that illustrate the remarkable way BYU has grown in both size and accomplishment. First, it was pointed out to me that BYU's typical incoming class now numbers almost 6,000 students, which is approximately 1,000 more than the first-year classes at Harvard Stanford, and Yale universities combined. The average number of those admitted who enrolled at those three universities is 1,633 each. If you look at the equivalent number of the top 1,600 plus or about 27% of first-year students at BYU, including high school GPAs, ACT and SAT scores, and other relevant accomplishments, BYU compares very favorably. Second, a Silicon Valley executive described to me the explosion of high-tech, leading-edge firms in Utah County and Salt Lake County, sometimes referred to as Silicon Slopes. He indicated that the caliber and excellent academic preparation of students from BYU, as well as other universities in Utah, including the functional lives that so many of them live, is a major component of this success. We are grateful for all that has been accomplished here at BYU Provo, as well as throughout the Church education system. We are particularly pleased with what has and is happening at BYU Pathway to bring the blessings of Church education to many who have not had this opportunity. When we look at the past, a great foundation has been laid. Many of the challenges of the past have been fulfilled. What are the specific challenges for our day that will help lay a foundation for the future? I recognize that some of what is going on in today is primarily about COVID-19. It is the elephant in the living room. And every single solution to the problems of the pandemic is accompanied by a significant downside we have great confidence that you will find the best available choices to move the mission of BYU forward in this regard. I want to focus on challenges that will outlast COVID-19 and will be in accordance with the theme of this conference, Be Not Weary in Well-Doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. I would suggest that maintaining a laser-like focus on our responsibility to help build faith in Jesus Christ and in His restored Church should drive our efforts. Young people are encouraged by their parents and leaders to attend BYU. Both the members and the Church support BYU with the primary consideration being their desire that BYU will build faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His Atonement. The adversary has many effective strategies for destroying this effort to build faith. I will mention three. First, the adversary constantly throws up obstacles to faith. Second, he creates alluring alternative visions that are based on the wisdom of the world and will be viewed favorably by many who are well-educated. Third, he attempts to confuse faithful and stalwart adherents as to what they should do and what they should say. We recognize that there always has and always will be challenges to faith. It is distressing when the Church and its leaders are unfairly criticized, especially by those who purport to be faithful adherents to its doctrine. Most of the criticism I am describing is calculated to be as powerful, direct, and divisive as the proponent can achieve. Whether it is meant to destroy faith is always an open question. When criticism is directed at the Church and our BYU, it is always difficult to know how or when to respond, or whether to respond at all. We live in a day when people are dismissive, highly critical, or disparaging of prior leaders, whether in government, academia, or religious leaders, including our own. I love what Matt Grohl, our incredible Managing Director of Church History, cautioned about this approach. Quote, Be careful about sources of information that just seek to tear people down. Look instead for sources of information that are based on the records left by the people themselves and that seek to be fair to them. It is really easy to play gotcha with the past pull a quotation or incident out of context and make it look alarming. Brother Groh continues, As a historian, I try to follow the advice of a British novelist. He said, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. That means when we visit the past, we don't want to be an ugly tourist. We want to try to understand people within their own context and their own culture. We want to be patient with what we perceive as their faults. We want to be humble about the limits of our own knowledge. And we want to have a spirit of charity about the past." End quote. One area that can help us to build faith is to be particularly sensitive in creating unity and being grateful for diversity. We are in a particularly heated period when deep and personal wrongs have been highlighted among our Black brothers and sisters. We each need to be at the forefront of righteously repenting and following the counsel of President Russell M. Nelson, who asked us to build bridges of cooperation rather than walls of segregation. The excellent message President Dallin H. Oaks delivered to the B-1 celebration of the 40th anniversary of the revelation on the priesthood June first, two 2018, should be read and followed. He said, quote, As we look to the future, one of the most important effects of the revelation on the priesthood is its divine call to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. The joint release by President Nelson on behalf of the Church and the leadership of the NAACP calling on people to demonstrate greater civility Racial and ethnic harmony and mutual respect is also an excellent example of doing the right thing in the right way. President Nelson's life is an example for each of us. It has always been difficult for institutions and their leaders to know how to deal with criticism. It is interesting to view this issue from a more distant perspective. Good literature often challenges us but can also give us guidance as to how to respond. I grew up in Logan, Utah, and graduated from Utah State University before my education at Stanford Law School. I majored in political science with minors in economics and English. My English minor was heavily tilted towards British literature. I served a mission for the Church in Great Britain, and my first assigned area was Gloucester Cheltenham in England. One of my favorite British writers was and is Anthony Trollope. His early writings emphasized the fictional cathedral town of Barchester, which he acknowledged could be Gloucester or Salisbury or any of the other quiet cathedral towns in the west of England. His story emphasized criticism of the local leaders of the Church of England. He highlighted the Bishop of Barchester, the Archdeacon, and the warden of the Lokan Hospital for criticism about the distant historical and current financial affairs of the hospital. The hospital would probably be called an assisted living center today. The English Church was opposed by, quote, reformers, and the news media, in this case the Jupiter, a London newspaper. The chief reformer, Dr. Bold, Trollope usually named his characters to describe characteristics, is described by Trollope as having a special mission for reforming. He lacks diffidence and trust in the honest purposes of others. He could not be brought to believe that old customs need not necessarily be evil and that changes may possibly be dangerous. Trollope further states that Bold hurls his anathemas against time-honored practices with the violence of a French Jacobin." Does that sound somewhat familiar, whether from the left, the right, the secular, and in some cases even the religious? The Barchester church leaders each respond in a different manner to the charges of Dr. Bold, the church critic, and the Jupiter newspaper. I will mention two responses. First, the Archdeacon, Dr. Theophilus Grantly, vigorously heads the defense of the church including hiring the renowned lawyer, Sir Abraham Haphazard, who discovers technicalities to defend the case without ruling on the merits. Second, the Reverend Reverend Septimus Harding, the warden of the hospital, is described as a kind, open-handed, just-minded man who feels that there might be truth in what has been said. Harding wants to be moral and right with the Lord. Some have described him as having persistent bouts of Christianity and being a true Christian. My purpose is not to review the novel, but to show how Trollope characterized both the critics and the defenders. One of the reasons I like the character Trollope attributes to Septimus Harding is because I have a difficult time explaining to friends and even colleagues in different faiths why the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints handles criticism the way it does. We are certainly among the least aggressive in defending ourselves against obviously untrue and or unfair criticism. I offer as Exhibit A our decision or lack of decision to react to the Book of Mormon musical. One leader of another faith pointed out to me, that there is not another religion that would not have responded with a hailstorm of righteous indignation at the crude, vicious, and reprehensible portrayal of our faith and our missionaries. Rather than organize a major protest or boycott, the Church bought ads in the playbill that simply said, You've seen the play. Now read the book with a picture of the Book of Mormon. Maybe... Persistent bouts of Christianity, a heartfelt desire to be true Christians, and a determination to turn the other cheek are the only plausible answers to my friends who raise this question. On a more serious note, a principal purpose for me today is to encourage you in your efforts to bless and guide the rising generation, to correct falsehood and matters taken out of context in a loving and kind way. There will be some occasions when we need to speak publicly to protect faith. In your interactions with young people, it is usually better to correct privately. To those who feel marginalized, wrap your arms around them figuratively and help them feel loved and appreciated. The Church and BYU are primarily concerned in building faith in Jesus Christ and the well-being of members, particularly the rising generation. Accordingly, we need to respond appropriately when there is a risk of destroying faith. Usually, direct response or litigation is not needed, but sometimes it is required. Just because the Church or BYU administrators do not respond, never assume that the criticism is justified. As I have indicated, many criticisms are not worthy of a response, and in many cases the Christian thing to do is not respond and to turn the other cheek. Some critics have a record of opposition that is so dogmatic, persistent, and unfair that Elder Bruce R. McConkie once famously said, then dogs keep barking and the caravan moves on. It gives me great comfort to know that the Lord can and will do his own work. As his servants, it is our great desire to assist him in building up his church. One of my purposes in sharing the Trollope account is to make it clear that manifestations of these kinds of issues have been apparent for a very long period of time and against every faith. Those who criticize the Church and its leaders often violate the principles that Matt Groh so eloquently expressed. Most criticism is based on words or actions that are taken out of context. The big picture is seldom painted. In recent years, the Church has done much to help people understand potentially difficult topics in the context of the big picture. These efforts include Saints, the Joseph Smith Papers, and the Gospel Topics Essays. I will share some of the context on some issues where our history is ignored or misrepresented by critics, understanding moments when we have been marginalized and persecuted should give us courage to stand with the marginalized today, to bear one another's burdens, to mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. In addition, recognizing when we have fallen short should create more desire to do our best today. Before reviewing some of the discrimination Church members have experienced, let me be clear that this discrimination is not comparable to the devastating personal impact and societal consequences of slavery. With this in mind, in the early 1830s, as Latter-day Saints moved to Jackson County, Missouri, to establish Zion, a covenant community, opposition arose from other settlers based on numerous issues, including the Saints' sympathetic views towards Native Americans and the Saints' disapproval of slavery. The early saints took seriously Book of Mormon prophecies that the gospel would be taken in the latter days to the descendants of the Lamanites, whom they understood to be Native Americans. These prophecies and the saints' attempts to preach to Native Americans raised suspicions among Missourians, who were generally hostile to Indians. Even more concerning for other Missouri settlers was the issue of slavery. Already by the 1830s, Significant cultural and economic differences were arising between Americans in the northern states, where slavery was largely outlawed, and the southern states, where slavery was expanding. Most church members were from the northern states and did not own slaves. Most other Missouri early settlers were from the south, supported slavery, and worried that large numbers of non-slave-holding saints would shift the control of local politics. In July 1833, William W. Phelps published an editorial in the church's newspaper that heightened these fears, titled Free People of Color. Phelps' editorial cautioned freed black Latter-day Saints to have proper paperwork if they migrated to Missouri due to state law. Local citizens misinterpreted the editorial as an invitation by church leaders for freed slaves to settle in Missouri. The Saints were accused of inciting a slave rebellion, promoting interracial mixing, and giving free blacks rights of citizenship upon their arrival. Despite attempts to calm the situation in a follow-up article, vigilantes demanded that the Saints leave Jackson County. When Church leaders refused, vigilantes destroyed the Church's printing office and tarred and feathered two men. The Saints were violently driven from Jackson County later that year. As we know, the Saints were driven again from Nauvoo a decade later. Brigham Young, the prophet of God, for whom this university is named, led the Saints during a tumultuous and difficult period of over three decades. He was a practical and organizational genius who led the Saints' great trek west and the gathering of tens of thousands to the American west. But more than that, he was a deeply spiritual leader, who testified boldly of the life and mission of Jesus Christ, who cared deeply about the spiritual and physical welfare of Latter-day Saints, and who sent missionaries throughout the world. Brigham Young also said things about race that fall short of our standards today. Some of his beliefs and words reflected the culture of his time. During this period, Brigham also taught with respect to race, quote, of one blood has God made all flesh. We don't care about the color. End quote. In 1835, the prophet Joseph Smith gave Brigham Young a special blessing to open the gospel to every Lamanite nation. Brigham took his charge seriously. All was not peaceful between Latter day Saints and American Indians in the 1800s, and there were significant moments of tension and bloodshed. At the same time, Brigham sought for and advocated peace, even at great cost to the saints at times. During one conflict in the 1860s, Brigham instructed saints to take a defensive posture by leaving their homes and moving to safer areas rather than fight. Explorer John Wesley Powell was astonished by the saints' actions to preserve peace. And some saints were also Frustrated with this policy of peace. Quote, the evil passions that arise in our hearts would prompt us to do this fight with the American Indians, Brigham told them. But we must bring our passions into subjection to the law of Christ. Furthermore, he told the saints that they should deal with American Indians so gently that we will win their hearts and affections to us more strongly than before, and the much good that has been done them. And the many kindnesses that have been shown them will come up before them, and they will see that we are their friends. Brigham also expressed admiration for Native Americans. He said, they had as noble spirits among them as there are upon the earth. He admired their honesty and their innate sense of honor and believed that the Spirit of the Lord was working with them. Of one Native American chief, he said, I do not believe a better man lives on earth he will do good all the time and will not do an evil if he knows it. In the words of one careful historian, a former faculty member of this university, quote, Brigham Young then was a man who stood out among the men and women of his time by his good words and acts toward Native Americans. End quote. Let me share with you my own experience with respect to race issues. As I indicated, I grew up in Logan, Utah, which at the time had very little racial diversity. My initial interaction with blacks was through athletic competitions and Boys Nation. In the summer of 1956, when I was almost 16 years old, I was elected from Utah Boys State to be one of the two senators to attend Boys Nation in Washington, D.C. Our accommodations were at the University of Maryland at College Park. At breakfast on the first morning, suddenly, most of the young men from the South stood on their chairs and sang Dixie. I did not have a clue what was going on, but I could see that one African American from the Northeast was visibly uncomfortable. This concerted action seemed very inappropriate, but I did not understand all the implications. One of the reasons I was surprised is because in my home, kindness and fairness for all Heavenly Father's children was emphasized, particularly by my mother. A highlight of Boys Nation for me was to meet then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower in the Rose Garden of the White House. He was one of the most impressive men I have ever met. His deportment and bearing his piercing blue eyes and his commanding manner of address made an indelible impression on me. Senator Wallace F. Bennett of Utah hosted the two of us who were representing Utah. He was gracious and kind and devoted considerable time to us. He introduced us to then-Senators John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, as well as then-Vice President Richard M. Nixon, all of whom would be future presidents. The topic of civil rights was significant at that time. It was at Boys Nation that I was first introduced to the religious-based effort led by Dr. Martin Luther King to achieve equality. My admiration for President Eisenhower grew when one year later, on September 23, 1957, he ordered the National Guard to support integration and protect the nine African American students who were attempting to integrate into Little Rock Central High School. The President's action was in support of the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, requiring integration of public schools. Later, as I served in the British mission in 1962, our mission president, Marion D. Hanks, had us read and study the Book of Mormon. We were asked to first mark everything in red having to do with the Savior. In the second reading, we marked doctrine in a different color. I chose green. President Hanks had been a general authority for nine years before serving as our mission president. He would teach us the doctrine after we had marked the Book of Mormon. When we read in the second book of Nephi, chapter 5, verse 21, describing a skin of blackness associated with being cut off from the Lord's presence approximately 600 years before Christ's birth, President Hanks was adamant that this phrase— related solely to that period, to that people and during that period of time. Those people who were Lamanites were literal blood brothers and sisters to Nephi and his siblings. President Hanks had us immediately turn to Second 2 Nephi 26.33, which reads in part, And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. That was our doctrine then, and that is our doctrine now. President Hanks made it clear that if anyone had feelings of racial superiority, they needed to repent. After my mission experience and one final year at Utah State, I graduated and went to Stanford Law School in the fall of 1963. The civil rights activities leading up to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 Were supported by all the law students, including the three of us who are Latter-day Saints. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. was a hero to me and my classmates. It was an exciting time for me personally. Again, at a personal level, I want to remind you of the overwhelming approval and gratitude across the entire Church when the revelation extending the priesthood to all worthy males and the blessings of the temple to all worthy Church members, regardless of race, was received and announced by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1978. National Magazine's writers were amazed at the celebratory mood. President Dallin H. Oaks described how he wept for joy when he learned of the Revelation. He said it was of such magnitude that it is etched in his memory. I personally had a similar experience and a profound feeling of gratitude. I was first called into a stake presidency in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1975 and served for 15 years, the last five of which I was stake president. I then served five years as a regional representative and then area authority. I was called as a general authority in 1996. In all that period, covering 45 years, I have never heard a racially derogatory comment from a single leader of the church. What I have heard is love, kindness, and respect for peoples of all races and all cultures. That was true in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it is true at church headquarters. In San Francisco, there were seven language units, including five different languages. We also had four English-speaking units that were very diverse in their racial and cultural makeup. One of our themes was to have unity amidst diversity. Looking back, one of the most impressive elements of the civil rights movement of the 1960s was how many leaders like Martin Luther King, Jr. and those surrounding him, including the recently deceased John Lewis, were motivated by their devotion to Christianity. They emphasized the Bible and wanted fairness and equality for all the children of God. It is clear from numerous media reports and observed public comments that some people involved in today's various movements are deeply opposed to religion and people of faith. This does not diminish the religious and secular reasons for equal treatment of all of God's children, which resonates with me to the depths of my soul. However, I am concerned when much of the discussion is an attack on faith and belief, often reframing and distorting our history. Some intentionally or not, are trying to undermine our country's founding history and the United States Constitution. Whether by intention or by myopia, both effects are regrettable. Boyd Matheson in the Deseret News recently stated, It has become an obsession for some to look back on history and reframe, recast, and reimagine what happened and why. Matheson continues, with audacious certainty, some experts declare the motives and character of complex individuals who lived in less advanced societies end quote." This approach is used not only in politics but also in matters of faith as well. This concern about diminishing faith and religion was raised by one of my heroes, William Wilberforce. He will forever be remembered for being the principal force for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. In the early 1800s, he proposed bill after bill in Parliament and spent his life to put a stop to the most execrable inhuman traffic that ever disgraced the Christian world. After nearly 50 years of promoting measures that would one day lead to the emancipation of slaves, the goal was accomplished in Great Britain the week before he died, July 29, 1833. According to his biographer, William Haig, Wilberforce's great fear was that religion and morality would go out of the window. Accordingly, Wilberforce never supported reform that was antithetical to religion. We all support peaceful efforts to overcome racial and social injustice. This needs to be accomplished. My concern is that some are also trying to undermine the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights that has blessed this country and protected people of all faiths. We need to protect religious freedom. Far too many have turned from the worship of and accountability to God. This has its roots, at least in part, in the academic world. A prominent European Jewish leader recently said, America can't remain the leader of the free world if the country goes beyond acknowledging that racism and inequality persist." and must be fought, and instead convinces itself that it's inherently and irredeemably racist. He continues, Yes, the U.S. has not always lived up to its ideals, but to claim that the founding's promissory note was never anything but a scam to maintain the system of white oppression is ahistorical revisionism that will erode the country's foundation. My challenge to you today is that individually and as a university, you will need to tack against the prevailing winds of disbelief and division. You'll know best in your own fields and your own spheres how to apply this counsel and stand as a beacon of belief and unity in a world that often devalues both. BYU needs to lift everybody's vision. This magnificent educational institution, in addition to excelling in everything pertaining to learning, as President John Taylor directed, must build faith in Jesus Christ and His Church in a powerful way. I am optimistic that this can be accomplished. You can do this. I challenge you to lift and bless the students who attend Brigham Young University. I desire to give you a charge similar to the one I gave new mission presidents this last June, paraphrasing and repurposing a Winston Churchill quote, I pray that you will light spiritual beacon fires that burn brightly in the lives of the students and that you will sound doctrinal trumpet calls that will echo in their hearts and minds throughout their lives. If you do this, for all the young people who attend this great university, There will be a strong foundation of faith and service and righteousness that will bless the Church and bless the world. You will fulfill your scriptural theme. Be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Choosing Unity Over Discrimination with thoughts from President Kevin J. Worthen and Elder Quentin L. Cook. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.